There we go. So if you've got a Bible, uh, then keep it open there on page one, presumably, uh, and I'm going to pray as we, as we start. Lord God, we know that you spoke and this whole world came into being, uh, and you do things, you achieve things through, through speaking, and we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us this morning uh, and change us. Help us to see the Lord Jesus in Genesis and to know you better and love you more through what we see. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're now on to day six of of creation and I gather you've gone through days one to five last week. Um, Reading through the, the days of creation is a bit like watching Wimbledon. I think, because you know how you, you watch a rally of Wimbledon in normal speed, then you get the slow motion version, and then you get that mega slow motion version, just someone sort of brushing their eyebrow for a, for a few moments, and it goes into progressively slower and slower phases. In the same way with Genesis 1, you start off with a, a almost normal speed creation, then you get slow motion, and then on day 6, you're into mega slow motion. At the start... God says, and it was so. Let there be light, and there was light. On day six, it breaks it down into stages. God was deliberating, saying, let us do this. And then God creates, and then he blesses, and then he gives a command. And we get this massively detailed picture of day six. Which is a suggestion to us that day six is, is really important. It's kind of the climax, or day six and seven are kind of the climax of the creation. And we're going to cover a whole load of topics uh, as, we, as we look through these words. I thought what we could do to begin with is skim through our passage, um, reflect on some of the curious things or some of the surprising things in the passage, and then we're going to focus in on one question, which I think this passage uh, is, is pushing, and that is the question of what, quite literally, what on earth are we here for? What is our purpose as people? I think it was the, the philosopher Aristotle uh, who said that we don't really understand something until we know that thing's purpose. It's telos, the reason for which it exists. And if Aristotle's right, then that means that we don't know ourselves until we know the reason we exist. What is our purpose? And that question of purpose is something which Genesis 1 uh, is hitting on. So first of all, let's, let's go through our passage starting from verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And the first thing that might strike us there is it's it's a bit surprising that one minute God is singular, God said, not, not God's, just the one God said, but then it's let us. And let's make mankind in our image. This first hint in the Bible story that God is one and many at the same time. That uh, as we know through the rest of the Bible's revelation that God is three persons, a Father, Son and Spirit. But all united into one God. Three persons equal in their godness. 
Let's carry on to verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. And in some translations uh, it also says in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So there's a bit of a suggestion uh, even here that mankind also we're kind of singular and plural at the same time that we're one group, mankind, we're one category, but we come in two subcategories, two subkinds of male and female. And male and female are both equally in the image of God. Uh, let's carry on, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So, first thing we notice there is that uh, God has created mankind. He's about to give a command, but the first thing he does is he blessed them. They hadn't done anything yet, but he blessed them anyway. And said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And this is kind of the second time we've now heard this command, in a way, because we heard it in verse 26 when God was deliberating about what to do. When he said, let us make mankind in our image so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and, and the birds, etc. And now he's actually saying it. So in other words, Genesis has repeated this sentence, so it must be particularly important. So let's stop to think about each of these uh, instructions. Be fruitful and increase in number. Clearly there's some kind of implication that they need to biologically become more numerous. Uh, there weren't many people around and God is wanting them, these humans, these people who are God's image bearers, to multiply and bear his image all over the place. We've also got to be careful though because this was an underpopulated planet. Now we live in a quite a crowded planet, as the economist Jeffrey Sachs says, this is a crowded planet. Um, so we've got to be cautious about saying we should just have as many children as we possibly can. That's not, it's not quite as simple as that. There was actually one early Christian, I won't mention his name because it's bad press for him, uh, but he said uh, that any, uh, every woman should have as many children as she's capable of, and the number of children that she could have that she doesn't have, she's guilty of that many murders. So there have been some people historically who have, who have said this means we must have as many children as we possibly can. But the, the problem is the Bible is not, a, Genesis is not intending to be a textbook for uh, sexual health and human reproduction. There's a, there's a deeper message, isn't there, to, to Genesis, and that is uh, being God's image bearers and fulfilling his purpose, uh, spreading the knowledge of God. And it's that deeper message that still continues today. Uh, how about fill the earth and subdue it? Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Just as God is uh, omnipresent, he is present everywhere, so are, are humans to go and spread our presence across the globe. Just as God is the ultimate almighty ruler, so people are to be rulers under God. In other words, we are to resemble God. So putting that all together then, our instruction as people is to spread the knowledge of God by resembling him wherever we go. 
That might be a translation of, of this command into our everyday English. Spread the knowledge of God by resembling him wherever we go. Uh, let's, let's carry on. So verse 29, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit, fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. Now at this point we think, hang on a minute, they're vegans. The first humans are vegans. Uh, and again, we've got to be cautious here uh, that just as, as, um, as Ash said last week, the Bible, Genesis is not simply a primer uh, for astrophysics, and we've seen it's also not just a textbook for human reproduction. Uh, in the same way, it's not a textbook for human dietetics. It's not simply telling us what we should eat. There's a deeper message to it. So it would be wrong to read veganism into this verse, partly because later on in Genesis, in Genesis 9, the Lord says to Noah, that he specifically, in the same way that he gave every green plant for food, in the same way he now gives every moving thing for food, every animal too. So what is this verse about then? What's all this talk about fruit and seed for? And I think it's because Genesis is a little bit like uh, an orchestra playing a symphony. In fact, the whole Bible is a little bit like an orchestra playing a symphony where one minute uh, a theme is introduced on the violins, and the next minute a theme is introduced on the cellos, the next minute a theme, another theme is introduced on the, on the trumpet, uh, and then the piece progresses, the themes are kind of woven together, and they come to a climax, a resolution in the finale. In the same way, the Bible one minute introduces a theme, then another theme, then another theme, and as the piece progresses, these themes are woven together, revealed in the person of Jesus, who is the, the climax of all of these themes. And seed is a theme. It's a theme in Genesis. Uh, and it's showing us that just as plants have a seed, seed being the thing that when the plant dies, it goes underground, it's kind of buried, it comes back as new life and multiplies. Later on, we're going to meet this guy Abraham, and Abraham is told that he also has a seed. Mankind has a seed. A descendant of Abraham is going to be that seed who is going to die, be buried, and come back to new life and multiply. And we see that theme resolved in the climax of the Lord Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. So this is just another hint that the, the seed or the Christ is coming. And that's why this slightly strange language of seed is emphasised in this verse, I think. Uh, so let's carry on. Uh, verse 30. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And uh, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So we see there that God is not just a speaking God. He's not just a God who speaks and determines the facts. He's also a God who sees and appreciates the value. And in chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished uh, the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And some people have read that to think, does that mean that God is just doing nothing now? Is he just sitting back in his lounge and kind of watching history progress on his TV. 
And that's what some people in the past have believed. That's called the heresy of deism, thinking that God is just checked out. He's wound up the universe like a clock, and now he's just leaving it to tick over. But that's not what Genesis is teaching. God hasn't finished doing everything. He's finished creating. So God is no longer making things from nothing, but he's still involved, and in some sense still working in our lives today. So that's a skim through our passage this morning. Um, that was really just intended to um, iron out any curiosities and surprises in the text. And if there's anything else that strikes you that you want to talk about, just grab me afterwards and let's, uh, let's have a think about anything else that's, that's unusual in the passage. Let's come back to our question then of what on earth are we here for? What's our purpose? Because what this, this chunk of the Bible has shown us then is that the definition of being human is defined by God. We're in the image of God, in his likeness. So there's no way of defining ourselves that makes sense apart from God. And then this command of be fruitful and multiply, etc., which we can kind of paraphrase as spread the knowledge of God by resembling him wherever we go, is then the purpose of our life. Aristotle would say our telos, I guess. This is the reason we exist. Which means that already, just at the bottom of page one of the Bible, we've already said something offensive. We've already clashed with our culture. The idea that we need God to know what we are and what we're for, that's not something that the world around us wants to hear. Let me, let me give some examples of what I mean. When we, when we think about what we are in today's culture, we don't like to define ourselves as in the image of God. We prefer words like homo sapiens. That sounds more scientific. And probably the dominant framework uh, of science at the moment is to explain ourselves in terms of what is physical. This is called kind of materialism, that only matter matters. So a scientific explanation that relies on something supernatural doesn't count. Only natural physical explanations count which means that what we are is purely a sum of our physical, biological parts. And we like to explain how we have become what we are using things like the Big Bang and large-scale evolution. We don't need reference to God anymore, says our society. We don't need any kind of designer. And what about the specialness of human beings? Well, our society says, well, we don't need to be made in the image of God, to see ourselves as special, we know we're special because we as humans can do things that the other animals can't do. We can reason and we can communicate and we can relate and we can experience much deeper than any of them can, even the dolphins. And again, the Bible's kind of offensive by talking about male and female. That's something that our culture doesn't really want to hear either. It's much more popular today, particularly in academic uh, circles and in literary circles, to think about uh, gender as a purely social construct. The Bible saying that it's not just a social construct, it's also a divine construct. But our society wants to say, no, we don't need this divine talk. Gender is just a social construct. And if it's a social construct, it can be socially reconstructed. The world around us says that Binary, this binary system only having two options, male or female, is bad, it's restrictive. 
Our culture would prefer to infuse a bit more choice into the matter. Choose for yourself what you are. Don't stick to the binary system. Let's have a whole spectrum. As you probably know, Facebook famously has 71 options of which gender you wish for yourself to be. Uh, and we like to talk about gender fluidity in our culture, don't, you? don't we? If, if you don't like what your culture is one day, you can change it from one moment to the next, one year to the next. And this is intended as a way of liberating women. The idea being that tra traditional models of male and female were a vehicle to propagate the oppression of women at the hands of men. So let's get rid of the categories and maybe we'll get rid of the oppression at the same time. So Genesis is extremely offensive to then say that there is just male and female. It's offensive. And so the world around us which says we don't need God to define what we are, we don't need God to tell us what we're here for, our world will then say you create for yourself your own purpose. You don't need God to tell you it. The philosopher Rousseau famously said that man is born free, but everywhere you see him in chains. And he and philosophers after him described religion as, as one of those chains that ties us down, that burdens us. And that's almost the exact opposite of the Christian message, isn't it? That he said, man is born free, now we see him in chains. The Bible says we're born in chains, and Jesus frees us. So create for ourselves our own purpose, whether that's happiness or success or something else. But the problem with rejecting God and trying to live that out is that it's all very well philosophically to talk like that, to say we don't need God and this, this is how we'll live instead. But when you actually try and live like that, there's no way of doing it consistently, authentically, or satisfyingly. And let me just give some illustrations of, of what I mean by that. Let's start again with... Uh, materialism and the idea that only matter matters, that all we are is the sum of our physical parts. If that is true, that all we are is what's physical, in that case we don't have spirits, we don't have a soul and that kind of thing, but we also don't have a mind, because a mind is not a physical thing. Our brain is a physical thing, which means that what we think of as our experiences, our feelings, our thoughts, our reasoning, has nothing to do with logic and everything to do with a chemical reaction happening in our skulls. A chemical process happening in one nerve cell, the neuron, just gets passed on over a little gap called the synapse to the next nerve cell and passes the chemical reaction along the chain. Same kind of chemical process as boils a kettle is the same kind of process that produces our thoughts. Just as there's nothing rational about a kettle, there is therefore nothing rational about our experience and our thoughts. Just as a kettle cannot know anything, therefore we also cannot know anything. Because what we call knowledge is just an accidental byproduct of a mindless, irrational process. But who can live authentically as if they know nothing? Can't do it. How would you know how to live if you know nothing? How about our human, our specialness as humans? This idea that we don't need God to show us how and why we're special because we can do more than the animals. That, that sounds appealing. Uh, and it kind of sounds persuasive, actually, at first glance, until, we, again, we try and live it out. If we are special because of what we can do, 
given that some people can do more than other people, we're therefore not equal. If we're special because we can reason, our minds are more sophisticated than animals, then are we really saying that people with dementia are less valuable than people who don't have dementia? If we're saying that we can do more than the animals, then are we saying that people who can do less, disabled people, babies, are we saying that they are less valuable? Can anyone really live that out authentically? And how about, how about gender? It's also a very a sensitive, a sensitive topic in our, in our world. I mean, I think there's a lot to learn, actually, from what our culture is saying about gender and, uh, and the oppression of women and inequality between the genders. And I think the church could do, could do well to listen, uh, just as much as we speak. But we do also have to reflect on this and think, is, if gender is purely a social construct, what then? If binary really is bad, binary, two options, is bad, non-binary, good, well, that itself is a binary thing to say, bad and good. So binariness can't be escaped. There's nothing wrong in itself with binariness. But this idea of choice is quite appealing, isn't it? That choosing for yourself what, what we are. But this has actually been challenged even by feminists. Um, quite famously, the, the feminist Jermaine Greer has challenged the idea of simply choosing your gender in a simplistic way. She said, well, if I go to my doctor and get him to put on fluffy ears and a tail, that doesn't make me a cocker spaniel. And I th- she says it quite provocatively, but she makes quite a good point. Where does this choice end? The intention of inserting choice, designing for yourself what we are, was intended to liberate women. But some feminists even have pointed out that making gender quite so fluid has actually undermined women. That, as you probably know, after two years, if I were to say I am a woman and call myself a woman and dress as a woman, after two years I can gain a gender recognition certificate from the government and I then am a woman. But some feminists have pointed out that's so offensive. That's saying that there's nothing more to a woman than that. But women are different because women feel, experience the world differently and experience oppression differently and experience relationships differently. So it's actually undermining of women to simply say a man choosing to be a woman is a woman. There's more to women than that, surely. So this intention of our culture to liberate ourselves by getting rid of God is actually constraining and limiting and harming ourselves because we're living a life of confusion if we reject God. And it's a hurtful confusion. At which point we could say, well, hang on a minute, it's pretty arrogant of Christians to come along and say, look, the world's all got it wrong and we've got it right. That's a pretty pretty bold claim. That's pretty rude. And of course, we're not saying that, and we we must run away from saying that. We Christians don't get it right either. The the Bible might speak the truth to us, but we don't always live out that truth in the right way. And I think there's one really key phrase in our passage. If we come back to uh, verse 27, I think it was. Sorry, verse 28. After God has created mankind in his own image, before he gives the command... He says God, it says God blessed them. He doesn't create humans and say, on the condition 
that you do this, I'll then bless you. He blesses people and then says, go and do this, go and be like this. In other words, blessing comes before command. The way we live is a response to our blessing, not a way of earning our blessing. So what that's supposed to look like, in response to God's blessing, we're supposed to then show what he's like by resembling him everywhere we go. Right? So that, in, that has implications for our minds, for our hands and our actions, as well as our hearts on the inside. That in, our, in our heads, in response to God's blessing, we're therefore supposed to be in tune to the God who speaks to people even though we don't deserve it. If we're living life in response to God's blessing, then in our hands we'll be doing good to people even though they don't deserve it. And if we're living life in response to God's blessing, in our hearts we will be loving towards people even though they don't deserve it. That's what we should look like. But the problem is, whether we are Christian or not, we don't live like that. We get the order the other way around. We try and put, instead of having blessing before command, we put blessing after command and we try and earn God's blessing by the way we live. How might this look in our heads, in our hands and in our hearts? Let's stop to, to play with that idea for a second. What does it look like for us to try and earn God's blessing? Let's start with our heads. If we're trying to impress God, essentially, and earn his blessing by how we use our heads, then we'll be extremely keen to show how right we are. We'll be irritated, even angry, when people disagree with us or don't understand us. And we'll be extra keen to assert our point of view. We'll become dogmatic people. That's if we think we really can earn God's blessing by using our heads. We'll become dogmatic and have a lack of respect for other perspectives, perhaps. On the other hand, we might kind of burn out and think, well, I'll never be good enough to earn God's blessing. I'm not even going to try. I'm going to give up. In which case, we won't become dogmatic. We might get put off by dogmatic people that we meet. Instead, we'll go to the other extreme and become relativistic and pretend, as the dogmatic person might say, this is the truth and overemphasizes the objective and, not, and forgets the subjective. If we're relativistic, we'll emphasize the subjective and forget the objective and pretend that all truth is just my opinion. Your truth is just your opinion in our private spheres and let's not, let's not cross into each other's territories. Let's just pretend that everything is just an opinion. So those are two ways we can kind of go wrong. We can, we can try to earn God's blessing and end up dogmatic, or we can give up trying to earn God's blessing and become relativistic. How about in our hands, in our actions? What does it look like if we're living life to try and earn God's blessing? Well, if we're earning God's blessing by what we do, then surely we've got to just keep doing more and more and more in order to, to be seen as better, to get more blessing. In other words, we'll become quite frenetic. We'll never be able to stop. We'll be the kind of people that have difficulty switching off from work. And what will wind us up is when people don't recognise how hard we're working, how hard we're trying here. 
That's if we're trying to earn God's blessing by our actions. But then we might also give up on that and think, well, I'll never be good enough to earn God's blessing through my actions. So I'm just going to kind of give up. In which case, rather than being frenetic people, we'll end up kind of lethargic people. Where if we're frenetic, we struggle to stop working. If we're lethargic, we struggle to start working. We think, well, is it really worth it? I'm never really going to be good enough. It's never really going to be over. That's in our hands. How about our hearts? What does it look like in our hearts if we're trying to earn God's blessing by the way we live? This might look like uh, if we're trying to impress God with our hearts and our relationships, then what will get to us is when people don't need us, when people don't want us. When things are going well, when people do seem to need us, then the going's good and we're on a high and we're inflated in our hearts because we feel like we've earned our blessing when people are liking us. But then when we feel rejected, when people aren't needing us, we'll feel crushed and deflated. So the sign that we're trying to earn our blessing in God's sight in our hearts is that we'll feel inflated and deflated. And that's a problem because we've only got those two options, right? Either we can try or we can give up. But if we try, then we end up dogmatic in our heads, frenetic in our hands, and inflated in our hearts. If we give up, we end up relativistic in our heads, lethargic in our hands, and deflated in our hearts. So whether we try really hard or whether we give up, we're stuck because we've still failed to live up to that command that God has given us, to be like him, to resemble him, spread the knowledge of him and resemble him wherever we go. And that's an extra problem because the book of Genesis tells us that the punishment for failing to live up to God's command is death. Genesis, the word means origins. It's not simply the origins of the creation or the origins of us. It's the origins of death. Genesis is the story of how life starts ending in death. Now, after Adam and Eve mess up and they sin, they fail their command, death enters the world and the rest of the book is just this relentless rhythm of so-and-so lived, then they died. So-and-so lived, then they died. So-and-so lived, then they died. Genesis is the origins of death, how life starts ending in death. So if we have all failed to live how we should, to live up to God's command, the punishment for all of us, according to Genesis, is death. So whether we try really hard or give up, we're stuck. So what what hope does the Bible give us? Because we're on page one and this is bad news. If the Bible is just a book of instructions, we are completely stuck. Because however hard we try, we fail. But thankfully, the Bible isn't just a book of instructions. And the language of Hebrews 6 refers to the message of Christianity as an anchor. An anchor for the soul. That's what the Bible gives us. And that anchor comes as a person, the person of Jesus. Jesus in the New Testament is referred to as the image of God. You and I were in the image of God, but he is the ultimate image of God. In other words, Jesus is the only one who really did live life as we're supposed to, 
in response to blessing. Jesus, eternally God, was eternally blessed by God the Father. And we even see that clearly when he was baptised and God the Father said, this is my son whom I love and blessed him. And in response to the blessing that he received from God the Father, he lived out this life of perfect resemblance to God the Father. That Jesus is the one person who we see in his mind, he's completely in tune with the God who speaks to people even though we don't deserve it. In Jesus, we see the one person who perfectly in his hands continues to do good to people, even though we don't deserve it. And in his heart, continues to love others, even if they are unlovely, if they don't deserve love. We see that in his life, and we see that most poignantly in his death, that Jesus was so faithful to living like God, so in tune to God's will that he went all the way to death, even to death on the cross. In other words, Jesus died the death that you and I were supposed to die. And not just that, a bit like the, the sea, he got buried and on day three came back as new life and has risen and is seated metaphorically at the right hand of God the Father. And if we don't believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that doesn't really matter, he's just a man who came and went. But if we do believe that Jesus is who he said he was, then he's not just a man, he's the anti-Genesis. Where Genesis is the story of how life starts ending in death. Jesus is the story of how death starts ending in life. Because not only did he rise again, if we have faith in him, we too will rise again through death and out the other side. Jesus is the perfect image of God who's done the work for us. He is the blessing that we've been given even though we don't deserve it. And the challenge to us is then to live our lives in response to the blessing we have already been given in the Lord Jesus. Not to try and earn our blessing, but to be thankful for our blessing we've already got. So the question for us is, what on earth are we here for? If we believe in Jesus, the sign that we believe Jesus is not simply that we turn up to church or that we say confession. The sign that we believe Jesus is that we will want to spread the knowledge of God and resemble him wherever we go. By being in tune to the, to the Lord's voice who speaks to us even though we don't deserve it in our minds. By doing good to others even though they may not deserve it in our hands. And being loving towards others even though they may not deserve it in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we are amazed that you are still involved with us even though we're so small and insignificant. And each one of us has, has lived a life that doesn't resemble you. Even though you've made us as your image bearers, we haven't lived up to that. We thank you, Father, that we don't have to bear that death and our life doesn't have to end in death. That through the Lord Jesus, our death will end in life. Please help us to love that and to love the blessing that you've given us in the Lord Jesus and to be the kind of people when people meet us 
Help us to be the kind of people that do spread the knowledge of you and resemble you wherever we go, right here and to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, Amen.